0: Good evening. A young philosophy don, a Jersey man at Oxford, Robert Ranulph Marrett, was intrigued by the surprising subject set for the 1893 Green Prize in Moral Philosophy, the ethics of savage races. And he immersed himself in the literature on primitive religion, won the prize, and was befriended by the only anthropologist at Oxford University, Edward Burnett Tyler. Now, Tyler was the father figure of the new discipline of anthropology which had emerged in the 1860s. It was a large, ambitious discipline, and Tyler himself wrote about race and technology and language and marriage, but especially about religion. And this became Merritt's main interest as well. And the first objective of the anthropology of religion was to characterize the earliest creeds and rituals. And the anthropologists then explained the advance of humanity from this long, dark age of magic and superstition to the sunny uplands of a more spiritual religion, or if their tastes lay rather in that direction, they showed how metaphysical error gave way to rationality and science. In any case, they took it for granted that religion, technology, and the social order advanced in lockstep through a determined series of stages. And at each stage, the beliefs and customs of societies at a similar level of development were taken to be essentially the same. So contemporary, so-called primitive societies, could be treated as stand-ins for past societies at the equivalent level of development. So the notions of American Indians, perhaps, or at a slightly higher level, the Tahitians, provided living instances of conceptions and beliefs that had once been very widespread. To know one was to know all. Captain Cook had introduced the word taboo from Tahiti, and soon taboos were being discovered all over the place. (laughs) And Other exotic ideas and notions were quickly generalised. Mana, another Polynesian word. Totem, from the Ojibwa. Potlatch, from the quacky of British Columbia. Voodoo, from West Africa. All were obviously elements of a universal primal religion. So Victorian anthropologists could write about Australian totems or American Indian taboos. And they could even identify totem and taboo in ancient Israel. Now, such beliefs and practices may once have been universal, but they were obviously irrational. So how could so many people have believed so many impossible things for so very long? Well, some missionaries, of course, saw the hand of the devil there. But the anthropologists prefer to argue that there was something about the way of thinking of primitive people that led them to make mistakes of perception and logic. After all, Darwin had shown that human evolution was paced by the development of the brain and it was widely assumed that the brains of different races developed at different rates. So the smaller brain savages, and indeed the early Israelites, were simply not capable of thinking very clearly. (laughs) So how did they think? Well, the anthropologists of religion had it worked out. So Tyler, for example, argued that primitive people confused subjective and objective connections. They relied, he said, on analogy or reasoning by resemblance. And Fraser thought that such reasoning by resemblance accounted for the belief in magic. Robertson Smith said that there was no sharp line between the metaphorical and the literal, and he blamed the unbounded use of analogy characteristic of pre-scientific thought for a confusion between the several orders of natural and supernatural beings. Now, it turned out that pre-scientific primitive thinkers were particularly likely to get into muddle when it came to causality. And Robertson Smith found that primal religion was characterized by insouciance, a power of casting off the past and living in the impression of the moment, which can exist only along with a childish unconsciousness of the inexorable laws that connect the present and the future with the past. According to Tyler, the very earliest religion actually arose from a misapprehension. People everywhere have dreams and visions, but primitive people confuse dreams with real experiences. And when they dream of the dead, they imagine that they must be living somewhere else, in another state, the kind of state they themselves experience in fevers, and dreams, and trances. And so, Tyler said, the ancient savage philosophers probably made their first step by the obvious inference that every man has two things belonging to him, namely a life and a phantom. And they then generalized this condition to the rest of the world. Even trees, even plants, even the planets had souls. And this is what Tyler termed animism. Once they had this belief, they soon invented rituals, notably sacrifice. These sacrifices were essentially, Tyler thought, gifts. As prayer is a request made to a deity as if he were a man, so sacrifice is a gift made to a deity as if he were a man. These sacrifices took the form of burnt offerings, because of course the spiritual beings were not interested in flesh and blood. They were interested in consuming the souls, the spirits of the dead. And vestiges of this primeval cult, which Tyler called survivals, recurred in the ceremonies of the most advanced religions. Now, in 1899, the young Marat became achieved, I suppose you could say, a certain notoriety by challenging Tyler's thesis that animism was the earliest form of religion. Marat identified an even earlier form of religion based on the Polynesian belief in mana, which he took to mean a sort of psychic energy and power. And mana, he thought, was inseparable from taboo. Altogether, he said, in mana we have what is par excellence, the primitive religious idea, in its positive aspect, And taboo represents its negative side, since whatever is mana is taboo, and whatever is taboo has mana. His theory actually made some converts in Germany and France, notably Marcel Mauss, who made mana the dynamic force behind the gift and the sacrifice. Marat later wrote a gently critical biography of Tyler's, in which he criticised what he called his intellectualist approach to the development of religion and morals. One was apt to picture an imaginary being known as the savage, who exactly as if he were an Oxford professor, sat and mused on the nature of things, and then got up and fitted his actions to his conclusions. (laughs) Tyler was already a frail old man at the time that Marit became his friend, And as David was saying, he really took over the construction of anthropology at this university. From 1928, he was also rector of Exeter College. He also served for many years as treasurer of the university golf club. A busy man. But he recalled, all this time anthropology was becoming a passion with me. Yet I was still attending to the subject with my left hand while the right tackled the philosophy which, after all, I was paid to teach. In fact, I became a scandal to my friends so that one of them wrote, a man of your talent seems rather wasted on the habits of backward races." As it was, I divided my attention impartially between the beliefs of the savage and those of the Oxford undergraduates. (laughs) Tyler's view of religion was hardly original. It was in the direct line of Enlightenment accounts of the development of rationality, and indeed it was remarkably similar to the theory that had been advanced by Auguste Comte a century earlier. But Tyler was also responding to two books, scandalous books, that challenged traditional understandings of the Bible The Origin of Species, published in 1859 presented a scientific alternative to the book of Genesis the following year essays and reviews appeared seven essays by intellectuals in the Church of England including Benjamin Jart, Mark Patterson and Frederick Temple who went on to become Archbishop of Canterbury these essays downplayed miracles questioned the story of the creation denied the doctrine of eternal punishment and endorsed and this is the most important thing for my story, endorsed German critical scholarship, which demonstrated that the Bible was a compilation of sometimes contradictory texts dating from different periods. Uh, the, at the time, the leading figures in this, um, in this biblical criticism were Julius Wellhausen and, and Hans Kühnen. They also had a theory about the pagan roots of the Jewish religion, According to Wellhausen, the original religion of Israel was a family cult. In time, the family cult became a tribal and then a national religion. Only with the emergence of great empires in Mesopotamia and Persia, which subjugated Israel, had prophets begun to formulate a universal religion foreshadowing Christianity. But even then, pagan elements survived. Well, perhaps the ordinary churchgoer could ignore all this. Owen Chadwick remarks that Victorian churches were full of worshippers who had never heard of Tyler, were indifferent to Darwin, and mildly regretted what they heard of Huxley. But the educated public did debate these ideas passionately. And in a room very close to here, Samuel Wilberforce, Bishop of Oxford, son of William Wilberforce. Provoked a famous confrontation with Huxley over the descent of man. Is Dr. Huxley descended from a monkey on his father's side or on his mother's side? The bishop also moved to have essays and reviews condemned in the Convocation of Canterbury. However, Tyler and the anthrop- early anthropologists of religion took Wellhausen and, of course, Darwin for granted. Their particular task, as they saw it, was to discover the origins of religion, origins that could never be completely outgrown, the vestiges of ancient cults haunting even the most advanced religions. And they had fresh evidence at their disposal, for they were able to draw on a stream of reports of primitive religions from all over the world, many of them the work of Protestant missionaries. Now, these sources were, of course, themselves shaped by the Bible, and by biblical scholarship. Protestant missionaries made it a priority to translate the Bible into the local language. And this obliged them to find terms equivalent to indigenous indigenous terms equivalent roughly to God, Spirit, Sin, Sacrifice, Holiness. And they assumed that these terms and the relationship between them constituted a religion. And of course, their understanding of what was a religion was itself drawn from the scriptures. There is, in fact, no word for religion in the Hebrew Bible. But it seemed obvious, at least to Protestants, that ancient Judaism was the prototype of authentic religion. And the Bible also gave examples of false religions, which were those of Israel's idolatrous neighbors. And it turned out that similar pagan beliefs and practices were abundantly represented in the societies to which the missionaries were called and they described the idols of these false religions now scientifically as totems and their laws were now described as taboos and the missionaries made much of their ghastly barbarous ceremonies, shocking exhibitions of lust, covetousness and anarchy featuring ghastly acts of cruelty including human sacrifice now these missionary ethnographers of course read the reports of their colleagues which described surprisingly similar pagan religions in different parts of the world and they welcomed the guidance of Tyler and Fraser who pointed out what they should be looking for and explained why superstition had such a hold and some missionary scholars were themselves aware and sympathetic to the new biblical criticism. The first Anglican bishop of Zululand, John Colenso, produced sympathetic accounts of Zulu beliefs and practices, even endorsing polygamy, which he noted, and as the Zulu remarked, had been practiced by the biblical patriarchs. Colenso also published contributions to the new biblical criticism and was duly tried for heresy in Cape Town. So, the anthropology of religion was from the very start very largely an anthropology of the Bible, with comparative notes from all over the primitive world. And precisely because it had consequences for Christianity, it seemed to be very important. Tyler was raised as a Quaker, of course, and was sure that rituals always depended on magical thinking. Fraser believed that by showing primitive relics, survivals in current religions he could demonstrate their futility but there was another point of view William, William Robertson Smith for example believed to the contrary that by this anthropological kind of investigation he was clearing away the debris of folklore and tribal custom so that the prophetic and historical truths in the Hebrew Bible could be properly appreciated and for their part, many missionary anthropologists and ethnographers delighted in discovering in the most primitive communities some faint intimations of more advanced doctrines, crude versions of biblical stories, even traces in the language of the passage long ago of some of the lost tribes of Israel. In the 1920s, 1930s, this sort of thing became a speciality of the Vienna School, then a hothouse, of Catholic missionary anthropology. Now, this is the development of religion, but at the same time, anthropologists were also looking at the development of society and the family from some kind of matrilineal band which wandered around marauding other people. And a Scottish anthropologist, lawyer, J.F. MacLennan, came up with an idea which links these theories of the early family with these theories of the early religion. So he came up with the idea that the early society was really just a group of blood relatives. And that the early religion, a form of animism, was actually worship of their ancestor. And this ancestor was imagined to be an animal or a bird. He called his theory totemism. So totemism was at once a form of social life and a form of religion which were inextricably linked at the early stages of human development. And he said this had been once universal and he even suggested in passing that the serpent story in the Garden of Eden may have had a totemic significance. But his theory of totemism was first systematically applied to the Hebrew Bible by his friend William Robertson Smith, who had been appointed to the chair of Hebrew and Old Testament at the Free Church College at Aberdeen in 1870. Robertson Smith accepted this idea that the earliest religion being totemism, and he then had to find the evidence for this. Not, Not very easy. He first looked at Israel's neighbors, He went to, he spoke Arabic, visited the Arabian Peninsula, tried to bring back some shreds of evidence of early matriarchy and totemic belief. And there were pretty thin pickings. But there was another kind of evidence which was available, which was that using the comparative method. You didn't have to go to Arabia to find contemporary societies, which like ancient Israel, because they weren't any longer, but you could find contemporary savage societies, which must be very like what early Israel was like. And indeed, they were totemic. So, crucially, he decided that totemic beliefs survived in ancient Israel, if in attenuated form. And he suggested, for example, the heathen practices against which the Hebrew prophets invade were of totemic origin, and that the second commandment itself was apparently directed against nature worship. This argument did not go down well with his employers. The General Assembly of the Free Church of Scotland issued a swift condemnation. First, concerning marriage and the marriage laws in Israel, the views expressed are so gross and so fitted to pollute the moral sentiments of the community that they cannot be considered except within the closed doors of any court of this church. Secondly, concerning animal worship in Israel, The views expressed by the professor are not only contrary to the facts recorded and the statements made in Holy Scripture, but they are gross and sensual, fitted to pollute and debase public sentiment. So he was chucked out of his job, but given readership and later a chair at Cambridge. (laughs) And he went on writing about ancient semitic religion and remained wedded to mcclennan's theory of totemism so if the earliest religion of israel was that of family groups which worshipped totems the basic thesis robertson smith said was that we are a group of relatives the congregation and the god of blood relatives Now These totemic gods were associated with shrines and sanctuaries, but there were particular moments when something more was required and sacrifices were made. These sacrifices, Robertson Smith said, were not gifts, as Tyler had thought. They were collective meals in which the totemic ancestors and his blood relatives in the congregation shared a meal. God and his worshippers are wont to eat and drink together and by this token their fellowship is declared and sealed primitive sacrifices were therefore essentially acts of communion between God and his worshippers but what was sacrificed what was eaten at this communion meal Robertson Smith declared that the totemic animal itself was the sacrificial object Normally a totem animal could not be killed and eaten. It was unclean, taboo. And taboos, Robertson Smith said, were primitive anticipations of the notion of the sacred. He pronounced the evidence unambiguous. When an unclean animal is sacrificed, it is also a sacred animal. The fundamental idea of sacrifices among the Semites is not that of a sacred tribute, but of communion between the God and his worshippers, by joint participation in the living flesh and blood of a sacred victim. Well, the argument was clearly leading up to climax, in which something would have to be said about the sacrifices of gods themselves in Semitic religions, perhaps in connection with the communion rite. And Robertson Smith took that step in this passage. That the God-man dies for his people and that his death is their life is an idea which was, in some degree, foreshadowed by the oldest mystical sacrifices, It was foreshadowed, indeed, in a very crude and materialistic form, and without any of those ethical ideas which the Christian doctrine of the atonement derives from a profound sense of sin and divine justice. And yet, the voluntary death of the divine victim, which we have seen to be a conception not foreign to ancient ritual, contained the germ of the deepest thought in the Christian doctrine, the thought that the Redeemer gives himself for his people. James George Fraser cited this passage in his obituary essay on Robertson Smith and remarked that it was dropped in a later revised edition of the lectures. Like Robertson Smith, James George Fraser was a Scot and like Robertson Smith again the son of a clergyman. And he became friends with Robertson Smith when he came to Cambridge and Robertson Smith commissioned him to write the articles on Taboo and Totem or the Encyclopedia Britannica, whose ninth edition he was editing. Fraser was very prolix, and his entries were much too long, and so he persuaded Fraser instead to turn them into a book. And Totemism by Fraser eventually ran to several volumes, and it marked Fraser's debut as an anthropologist in his own right. But Fraser's most famous book, The Golden Bough, first published in 1890, followed up Robertson Smith's speculations about the sacrifice of a temic god. He also drew on the theories of a German folklorist, Wilhelm Mannhardt, who had explained German peasant cults of sacred trees as survivals of ancient fertility cults. Fraser combined these elements and he constructed a sort of ethnological detective story. It began with the ritual murder of the king of the wood, the priest of the sanctuary of Nemi near Rome. The sacred priest king was the embodiment of a tree spirit and it turned out he was not simply murdered but was rather sacrificed to ensure the fertility of nature. Clues were drawn from a wide range of ethnographic sources and they all tended to show that primitive people identified their well-being with a fate of natural spirits whose priest kings were sacrificed at fertility rituals. The result then of our inquiry is to make it probable that the king of the wood lived and died as an incarnation of the supreme Aryan God, whose life was in the mistletoe or golden bar. Now, this might seem to imply that the gospel accounts of Christ's crucifixion were further versions of the myth of the sacred king. And indeed, Fraser wrote in a letter to a friend, the facts of comparative religion appear to me subversive of Christian theology. He then turned his attention to the Hebrew Bible. In 1904, the Regius Professor of Hebrew in Cambridge, Robert Hatch Kennett, was persuaded to offer a private beginner's class in Hebrew. It attracted a very select clientele, Jane Harrison, F.M. Cornford, A.B. Cook, and Fraser. And Fraser became competent enough to be able to read the Old Testament in Hebrew. And he began to put together an anthropological commentary on the Old Testament just as he had earlier compiled commentaries on classical Greek texts. And he published folklore in the Old Testament in 1918. And what he did was to take a myth or a custom in the Bible say uh, are there parallels for this in primitive society? Indeed there were. Primitive societies also had cousin marriage or marked murderers or myths about floods. And this was to show that Essentially, the Bible was just an assembly of primitive superstitions. As a modern biographer, Fraser comments, the implicit purpose of the work was to undermine the Bible in religion by insisting on its folkloric stratum, thereby associating it with savagery. Fraser continued to publish on the Hebrew Bible until the 1930s, and of course Sigmund Freud produced yet more daring exercises in speculative anthropology, Totem and Taboo, and Moses and Monodaism. But a reaction was developing against just so stories of origin. Occasional attempts were made to later, in the 1930s, 1940s, even 1950s, to add new chapters of folklore in the Old Testament, but written in a functionalist idiom. But the comparative method itself was now coming under fire. Smith chided biblical scholars for paying more attention to primitive parallels than to textual analysis. And Wittgenstein, when he read The Golden Bough, commented, Fraser is much more savage than most of his savages, for these savages will not be so far from any understanding of spiritual matters as an Englishman of the 20th century. His explanations of the primitive observances are much cruder than the sense of the observances themselves. Because, of course, in Wittgenstein's view, meaning was a matter of context and use. And the rising generation of anthropologists who was the first to go into the field naturally agreed. In fact, it was their credo that customs had to be studied in action. And Marat himself was all in favor. Fieldwork alone would deliver a properly sympathetic understanding of exotic beliefs. In the course of a critique of what he called Fraser's intellectualism, Marat asked, how then are we to be content with an explanation of taboo let does not pretend to render its sense as it has sense for those who both practice it and make it a rallying point for their thought on mystic matters. We ask to understand it and we are merely bidden to despise it. So they agreed then, the philosophers and the anthropologists, that concepts and practices could be understood only by appreciating their use in the business of everyday life in particular communities. Context was all. Peter Winch's Idea of a Social Science, published in 1958, identified the doctrines of the later Wittgenstein with the analytical practice of Oxford's new professor of social anthropology, Edward Evans Pritchard. As Mary Douglas put it, summing up what she took to be the position of Evans Pritchard, everyday language and everyday thought set into their social and situational context have to be the subject of inquiry. Evans Pritchard had read history at Exeter College as an undergraduate and he recalled Merritt as an affable fellow, but when he became professor of social anthropology and lectured on theories of primitive religion, he had nothing good to say about the ideas of Merritt and his like, or indeed about the comparative method. He dismissed reductionist psychological and sociological accounts of religion and argued that spiritual beliefs should be treated seriously in their own right. Another son of an Anglican clergyman, Evans Pritchard, was, however, a recent convert to Catholicism but he was inclined to believe that all religious belief must contain a kernel of spiritual truth. This now seemed to him to be their most important feature. Okay, now let's remember that according to the practitioners of the comparative method, the essential ingredients of primitive religion were totem and taboo, and its defining ritual was sacrifice. In 1950, Franz Steiner, an emigre Jewish mystic, a German poet, a friend of Elias Canetti, a lover of Iris Murdoch and a lecturer in the Oxford Institute of Social Anthropology (laughs) gave a course of lectures on taboo which were edited and published after his death. The central thesis was that the constructs of the comparative method had been lifted from very specific ethnographic contexts and generalized. And in the process they had been stripped of their particularities and lost most of their meaning. And when new functionalist ethnographers tried to use these old concepts in analysis of their own material, it quickly became apparent that the old terms had to be qualified to the point that they then lost any comparative value. His example was Taboo, which he tagged a Protestant discovery, but he said that the notion that Taboo's regulated social order and morality was a Victorian invention, peculiarly interesting To snobs and prudes but actually of course taboo was a Polynesian concept and Steiner proceeded to analyse the specific meaning of taboo in the context of Polynesian language, thought and religion he then turned to Robertson Smith whose work he treated over three lectures for Robertson Smith you remember the notion of the sacred originated in the idea of taboo and Robertson Smith depended here an analysis of the biblical Hebrew word kadosh Steiner had an educated knowledge of Hebrew and he now analyzed the idea of kadosh and demonstrated, as indeed Durkheim had indicated, that it couldn't be translated simply as taboo and so neither the idea of taboo nor the idea of kadosh were cross-cultural categories so much then for taboo Evans Pritchard, particularly in his work on Nuer sacrifice, made a similar series of points, but taking off from very detailed ethnographic studies of the Nuer sacrifice. Nuer sacrifices had many different meanings, even for the Nuer. They took all sorts of different forms. Some, no doubt, had sociological functions, but others, which Father Kratsovara, a Catholic missionary, had been particularly interested in, were what he called piacular sacrifices. And they were not about society at all. They couldn't be analysed in the same way. They were rather about, Evans Pritchard said, the regulation of the individual's relation with God, capitalised here. So we're not talking about a mere tribal deity. In the very last sentences of Newer Religion, he wrote, the meaning of newer Rites depends finally on an awareness of God and that men are dependent on him and must be resigned to his will. At this point, the theologian takes over from the anthropologist. So after all, if there was one true religion and a little light should shine even in the darkest places. So taboo was a Victorian invention. Sacrifice was a broad term for a range of ritual practices with unpredictable meanings, resistant to sociological evidence and to comparison. That left totemism. Well, the idea of totemism was shredded by Claude Lévi-Strauss in two books published in 1962, in which he also demonstrated that taboo was not a good totemism, excuse me, was not a good cross-cultural category, and what anthropologists should do was to analyze the truly universal process by which all societies classify and relate social groups and natural phenomena by a series of binary oppositions. So, late 1950s, early 1960s, we'd got rid of totemism, we'd got rid of taboo, and we'd got rid of sacrifice, the primary elements of comparative religion. Yet, I will argue, the change of paradigm was more apparent than real. A close reader of Steiner and Levi-Strauss might still be inclined to study the place of taboo and totemic marriage rules in biblical religion, even if these were now understood rather differently. According to Levi-Strauss, all societies established parallel classifications of social and natural phenomena by making a series of binary contrasts. Well, that was totemism. Properly understood. And Steiner indicated that every society marks off certain social and natural categories as dangerous. Well, properly understood, then, taboo was a property of a system of classification. Edmund Leach and Mary Douglas now proposed a structural account, or structural accounts of biblical taboos on food and marriage. Their projects were similar. But like Robertson, Smith and Fraser, Edmund Leach and Mary Douglas began from very different points of view. Leach was a crusading atheist. His mother had hoped that he would be a missionary. Instead, he became the president of the Humanist Society. (laughs) Mary Douglas was a conservative Catholic. Reviewing Mary Douglas's natural symbols in the New York Review of Books, Leach wrote, all her recent work gives the impression that she is no longer much concerned with the attainment of empirical truth. The object of the exercise is to adapt her anthropological learning to the service of Roman Catholic propaganda. (laughs) Reviewing a book by Edmund Leach a couple of years later, also in the New York Review of (laughs) Books, Mary Douglas claimed that Leach had imposed his own meanings on myths just like Fraser. And she concluded that the ingenious argument is extremely interesting And to readers who are unfamiliar with Old Testament scholarship, quite plausible. (laughs) And yet it seems to me that the two anthropologists had much in common including a perhaps unconscious tendency to project back onto the biblical world their own ideas about European Jews, whom they were inclined to think were rather obsessive about food and unreasonably prejudiced against intermarriage. And Mary Douglas's account of the politics of ancient Israel just after the return from the Babylonian exile uh, has extraordinarily parallel to certain views of the politics of contemporary Israel. Now, to be sure, the projection of the present into the past is hardly unusual. But Edmund Leach and Mary Douglas also shared more specialized ideas. Mary Douglas's writings on Leviticus follow a remarkably similar track to those of Leach. And both harked back to Levi-Strauss. In 1961, Leach published an essay, Levi-Strauss in the Garden of Eden, which flagged his conversion to structuralism and introduced Levi-Strauss as a better guide to the Bible than Fraser. He insisted that the Bible should be treated as myth. It had been compiled by the post exilic editors. It was absolutely hopeless to try and separate out historical elements from mythical elements and the post-exilic editors had imposed a unity a political message on all these texts the redaction of the Tanakh followed a party line that of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the texts were edited to support their bosses land grabbing xenophobic nationalism and insistence on endogamy Leach said this wasn't to say that the editors knew exactly what they were about. Even Rupert Murdoch's editors don't always know exactly what they were He said what the myth then says is not what the editors consciously intended to say, but rather something which lies deeply embedded in Jewish traditional culture as a whole. In Genesis's myth, published in the following year, Leach analyzed the construction of the world and its creatures by way of a series of binary contrasts as set out in the opening chapters of Genesis. In Leviticus 11, he said, creatures which do not fit this exact ordering of the world, for example, water creatures with no fins, animals and birds which eat meat or fish and so on, are classified as abominations. Here, in in a later paper, Animal Categories and Verbal Abuse, he argued that precisely because classifications of the Levitrosian sort are always arbitrary, They are bound to throw up anomalies. How do you treat these anomalies? You taboo them. And taboos on anomalies reinforce boundaries. As Mary Douglas phrased the general principle, we should see taboos as the performative acts which stop the careless speaker from getting the categories confused. The performance protects boundaries around classifications. Impurity and taboo supply backup for the current system of control. Well, the most important taboos had to do with sex and food. Mary Douglas called them bed and board. So Leach treated the biblical stories of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and Ham, Lot and his daughters, Abraham and Sarah, as a set of structural transformations on the theme of incest and exogamy. Arguing that all societies struggle with similar concerns, he compared these stories to the myth of Oedipus, which Levi-Strauss had selected for exemplary analysis in the first presentation of his structural analysis of myth. Now, levi Strauss's view, of course, was that myths grapple with existential issues and they generate temporary resolutions of intractable problems. And Leach tried to show that this is what the biblical myths, which just all myths, were doing. So in an essay entitled The Legitimacy of Solomon... He argued that this myth mediates a a major contradiction, a contradiction between the assertion that God gave the land of Israel to the Jews and that they should be endogamous, and the reality that the land accommodated a number of different peoples with whom Jews, even kings, intermarried and for good political reasons. And so Leach argued that a series of central myths in the Hebrew Bible offered conceptual resolutions of these structural contradictions. Mary Douglas's Principle of Purity and Danger, published in 1966, was directly inspired by Franz Steiner's lectures, which he had attended on taboo. But it became famous for her first attempt at an anthropology of the Bible, a chapter on the abominations of Leviticus. But this exercise was little more than an elaboration of Leach's brief treatment in Genesis and Myth, and her method was Leach's method. She didn't suggest there that there might be some relationship between these food taboos and social structure, an omission she later tried to repair. An early move was to relate the classification of people to the classification of animals, in accordance with Levi Strauss's directives in La Pensee Sauvage. So, for instance, she said, the firstborn of edible creatures are presented to the priests for sacrifice, but they must be without blemish. The Levites replaced the firstborn of the priests and became a priestly caste. They performed sacrifices in the temple and must be without blemish. Now rules about purity, according to Mary Douglas, protected conceptual boundaries. Rules on endogamy enforced social boundaries. And Mary Douglas agreed with Nietzsche that the ancient Hebrews were obsessed by endogamy and she related to, this, to their fussiness about foods. But she identified distinct sociological foundations for the purity rules on the one hand and the rules on intermarriage on the other. Purity rules, she said, came from the priestly faction. The rules of endogamy came from the Persian satraps Ezra and Nehemiah, who were trying to do an exercise in nation building. The tabernacle was the sacred heart of Judaism, but the same concern for purity regulated both temple sacrifices and everyday food taboos. This was because the body was itself a temple. So she concludes her final collection of essays, Jacob's Tears. The Levitical food prohibitions have plenty to do with the tabernacle. They frame the analogy between tabernacle and body. What goes for one goes for the other. And a central theme in her work became the parallelism between the laws of kashrut and the laws of sacrifice, between the body and the temple between the Temple and Mount Sinai and the Sanctuary. And in Leviticus's literature published in 1999, she introduced a further structural parallel between the form of the book itself, a ring structure, and the layout of the Temple. These studies by Leach and Mary Douglas were inspired by Levi-Strauss, but Levi-Strauss himself disapproved of them. A year after the publication of La Pense Sauvage, the General Esprit arranged a discussion between Levi-Strauss and a group of philosophers led by the Christian existentialist Paul Ricoeur. Ricoeur had just made his famous linguistic turn, and he now believed that only a hermeneutic interpretation of signs, symbols, and texts could yield true understanding. Now, Lévi-Strauss was, of course, all in favor of a linguistic turn, but his linguistics was very different. Ricoeur charged Lévi-Strauss with privileging structure over meaning, syntactics over semantics. This might be appropriate in analysing the ideas of simple societies which really had very little to say for themselves but it was not helpful when it came to more complex intellectual systems. Similarly the play of transformations in the myths of cold societies were very different from the historical, logically sequential myths of more complex hot societies like ancient Greece and Israel. They had produced great narratives that were vehicles of profound reflections about human existence. Could levi Strauss's methods be applied to these myths? Well, Levi-Strauss responded that myths did not make sense in the way that Rico imagined. They did not send messages. Rather, they commented on each other. Symbols had only a positional significance. But Levi-Strauss rejected the notion that there was a difference in kind between the mythologies of cold and hot societies. After all, he pointed out there had been interesting and fruitful studies of Greek myths in structuralist terms. The Bible was different. Incidentally, perhaps incidentally, Levi-Strauss was the grandson of the rabbi of Strasbourg. In any case, the problem with the Bible was first that while it incorporated mythical sources, these had been edited and Levi-Strauss said distorted. Moreover, to understand myths, one had to have some basic ethnographic information about the society in which they were current but the ethnographic information to be gleaned from the Bible was very probably itself heavily mythologized. I should say, typically, Lévi-Strauss broke his own rule and in his 80s published a little jeu d'esprit in l'homme called, typical Lévi-Strauss pun, Exode sur l'Exode, in which he compared the myth of origin of circumcision in the Hebrew Bible with the myth of origin of the development of the penis sheath among the Bororo Indians on the Amazon. The responses of biblical scholars to the structuralists have been mixed. An obvious complaint was that Leach and Mary Douglas lacked the scholarly preparation that their project required. For example, J.A. Emerton exposed Leach's dubious etymologies and other errors. He also pointed out that Leach's approach to the Bible was very selective, Leach exaggerated biblical concern with purity of blood, and ignored the fact that intermarriage was denounced for religious rather than political reasons. The real fear was that men would follow their wives and worship foreign gods. Jacob Milgrom and Jacob Neusner have made gracious comments on Mary Douglas's work, but it's probably fair to say that few biblical scholars have engaged with structuralist methods. They generally share the reservations expressed by Paul Ricoeur. Now, biblical scholars may perhaps be reassured that recent contributions have been made by anthropologists who do have a command of Hebrew, Aramaic, and even Arabic. And interestingly, they treat not only the Tanakh, but also the Mishnah and the Talmud. The Gospels, however, have been strangely neglected despite a provocative contribution by Leach on virgin birth. I have only time to mention a few outstanding studies. They generally take a structuralist approach, notwithstanding Levi Strauss's reservations. Seth Daniel Coonan covers much the same ground as Edmund Leach with impressive scholarship. Maureen Bloom has published a fascinating structural account of mysticism and magic in the Talmud, relating Talmudic conceptions to biblical and Babylonian sources. And Edouard Comte is engaged in the analysis of Quranic texts on descent and incest that present further transformations of the same body of mythology. I find particularly interesting those studies that broaden the field to include Babylonian sources, the Talmud, Islam, and why not early Christianity too. And yet the themes that are most prominent in even the most daring of these studies are still too often restricted to what an earlier generation would have called totem, taboo, sacrifice, magic, and myth. I have argued that the anthropology of religion was shaped by a certain understanding of the Bible, well, the anthropology of the Bible is still enthralled to hoary old ideas about the nature of a supposedly primitive society. To a remarkable extent, the anthropology of the Bible has constituted a single discourse for 150 years so that the ghosts of Robertson, Smith, Fraser, and Marritt would find recent contributions rather familiar, perhaps even persuasive. I do not find that altogether reassuring. Thank you.